feels weird because I lead so irregularly. I'm so used to coming out and saying good morning when I come out to preach, but I've been up here all morning. What it might come as a relief to you is that I didn't find out that I was preaching just when I turned up this morning. I have actually prepared for that. Even still, I desperately need uh, the help of the Lord in our time together that I might represent his word well. Um, There won't be slides, so don't expect to see things come up on the screen. Um, Jesus managed to get away with most of his sermons without a PowerPoint, so I think I can get away with it this morning as well. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have given us your word that we might know you, that we might be wise to salvation, that we might be complete and equipped for every good work. Uh, Lord, we pray that it would be um, like streams of living, living water welling up within us, that we would be like uh, trees planted by streams of water, flourishing and growing to life and life through your life-giving word. We pray as we see something more of Jesus, our Lord, that we might know something of the one whom we follow, that we might be shaped and conformed to become more and more like him. We pray that we would be encouraged by the grace you have shown us in the gospel. And Lord, we pray too that it would be a wonderful opportunity to hear of the grace if we have never responded to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may your word uh, do in us the very thing for which you inspired Mark to write these words. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know the old expression, it's nice to have friends in high places. What do you think they mean when they say that? Usually the way I find it tends to pan out is when people say they like to have friends in high places, they like the idea of having some degree of familiarity with somebody who has a, an area of influence or privilege that they hope that they can use that for their own benefit at some time. Now, I'm sure police face that dilemma all the time. They pull someone over and then all of a sudden they realise, oh, this is my, this is my best mate, but, he, but he's been breaking the law and he's going to say, oh, come on, mate, you can't do this to me. Wherever there is a familiarity or association, sometimes people presume they're entitled to control or to influence or to use you for their own benefit. Anyone who has any degree of access to special privileges soon finds out that they've got friends and family members that they never knew they had because all of a sudden they come knocking in the hope that they can manipulate you for their benefit. Today as we look at this passage we see various responses to Jesus both from people who are actually already close to him but also some who are far from him and opposed to him. So far as we've looked at the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus revealed as the Son of God, the unique, eternal Son of God, the Saviour, the anointed King, the one who stands alongside and on behalf of sinful mankind. And he's verified those things which Mark has said about him in his authority shown over his casting out of demons, healing of the sick, forgiving a young man's sins. He's taught and acted in such a way that it amazed most of the people, but also angered a few along the way. 
In particular, in chapter 3, verse 6, after he healed that man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, it says in verse 6 of chapter 3, then the Pharisees conspired with the Herodians to have Jesus killed. But still, at this point in time, the majority who saw Jesus were amazed by him. They said, we've never heard anyone teach with an authority like him. We've never seen anyone do the things which he does. And despite the fact there were some who opposed him, Jesus continued to gather large crowds everywhere he went. Whether their motive was just because they were fascinated, they wanted him to put on a show, or whether they were genuinely drawing near to him, they did draw around him in crowds. He always had people around him. But one thing we've seen so regularly is proximity to Jesus does not equate to relationship with Jesus. Today we are going to look in verses 20 and 21 and also 31 to 35, this concept of restraining or serving Jesus. Then in 20 to 30, sorry, 22 to 30, restraining or serving Satan. And then we're going to look at forgivable or unforgivable. So we're kind of mixed up, just grouping things together a little bit by theme this morning. Firstly, restraining or serving Jesus. The first group that we look at are people who are close to Jesus. In verses 20 to 21, they're being described as his family, although we'll look at maybe that's not the best term necessarily to translate that. We'll look at those in verses 31 to 35, those who are sitting around him, his disciples, and then his family, his mothers and his brothers. But in each of these three groups that we're looking at, or two if family is what is intended in verse 21, they're all people that we would presume to be faithful followers of Jesus. Those who are close to him, those who are his disciples, his mother and his brothers. But within these inner circles, there are people who attempt to hinder Jesus, who attempt to, to restrain or redefine or point him in a different direction or to tame him or domesticate him. First we look at his family or his people described in verses 20 to 21. Now I remember the first time I read through that in preparation, I thought, that's, that's a weird thing to, to hear. Jesus goes home, the crowd gathers again so they couldn't eat. Then it says his family heard it. They went out to seize him and they were saying he was out of his mind. And that kind of rings alarm bells, doesn't it? His family wanted to seize Jesus and reckoned he was, he was off his rocker. Now we're not surprised that there were crowds there because that's been happening everywhere Jesus has been going. But now the crowds are getting so much that even in his own home, or the home in which he was living in, presumably that same home in Capernaum where he previously healed Simon Peter's mother, that they couldn't even eat. And whoever this family are, they've had enough. Like, this is too far. This Jesus is going well off the spectrum of what we believe he should be doing. But when I said 
the word family may not be the best term to use there is because, even though most English Bibles say that, there is a Greek word for family and that's not actually the word that gets used in this verse. What is described in this verse specifically just means those who are near him or those who are around him or those who are close to him. So that may include his family, maybe maybe relatives, but the term doesn't specifically state that. But it does state those who are near or those who are close to Jesus. And the response of these people who are close to Jesus was, we need to seize Jesus. This has gone too far. We need to apprehend him. We need to restrain him. We need to take away his freedom to be who he wants to be. That's an unexpected response from people who were close to Jesus, isn't it? They say the reason why they want to restrain him is because he's out of his mind. Now, they didn't give us all the details of why they came to the conclusion that Jesus was out of his mind. Was it because, now this is enough, enough, we can't even get in and eat dinner in our own house? Is it because life, the way it normally would go on, people would respect and listen to and do everything the religious leaders said, but Jesus challenges them and he, and he questions them. This Jesus has even said on an occasion that he forgives a man's sin by his own power and authority. But whatever reasons these people close to Jesus had, they thought, he needs to be stopped, he's out of his mind. In other words, what Jesus was doing, his actions, his words, were beyond whatever expectations they thought were acceptable and that needed to be curbed and hindered and restrained. It's a strange thing, isn't it? That people close to Jesus would think that he needs to be stopped from doing what he's doing or restrained from doing what he's doing. You think, oh, there's no way that we would do anything like that. We, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't get in the way of Jesus in any way whatsoever, would we? What about when we read things that Jesus says? Jesus says a lot of hard things that confront our attitudes, confront the, some of the things that we love. Do we sometimes look at those things and think, ah, oh, Jesus can't have... I know that's what the words say, but Jesus can't have meant that. And we try and restrain what Jesus has said and make it more palatable and conform it more to the way we would like it to be. I think we need to be very careful as people close to Jesus that we do not try to make Jesus or define Jesus in a way different than the way he presents himself. He is the Lord. We are not the Lord. We are to be conformed to his image, not he conformed to ours. The second group of inner circle that he looks at, going down, down in, in the verses to verses 31 to 32, are his family, his mothers and his brothers. When his mothers and brothers came, they were standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So his family are outside of the house, while the crowds are inside the house. That's a little bit backwards. 
But the crowds communicate to, the, to Jesus that his family is seeking Jesus. And that word which is translated seeking every other time which it is used in the Gospel of Mark speaks of people trying to restrain or gain access or control over Jesus to point him in a different direction. His family. His family, like the previous look group that we looked at, thought that because of their closeness and their familiarity with Jesus, that they should have some degree of authority or privilege to control and direct Jesus. It's an unusual picture that the crowds would be inside the house and those who we would think to be close in the eyes of Jesus are outside the house and calling Jesus in such a way to direct him down a different path. With their false assumptions, they are outside, yet there are those who are inside learning at Jesus' feet. The third group that we look at in the inner circles are his disciples. By his disciples, they don't just mean the twelve as we traditionally say. Now, there was a greater group, both of men and women, who would have been gathered even already at this point in time. And in response to this call that your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you, Jesus responds in verses 34 and 35. He says, In looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mothers or my brothers. Or in Matthew's similar account in Matthew chapter 12, it says, And stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he said, Here are my mothers and my brothers. Jesus is saying to him, to to all of us, that his family is not so much about genetic relationships but about spiritual relationships. At this point in time, Jesus' own brothers, according to John chapter 7, verse 5, didn't believe in Jesus. When speaking of a, his family who are defined by those who are around him, he says they are the people who are characterised, in verse 35, who do the will of God. That's who is his brother and his sister. Or in Luke's account of the same thing, it says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word and do it. Jesus is not saying, my people are those who are just part of a crowd who gather around me. Jesus says, those who are my family are those who sit at my feet, who do the will of God, who hear the word of God and put it into practice. That's what discipleship looks like. That's what a disciple of Jesus looks like. They listen to him, they follow him, they obey him. They hear the word and they do it. Unlike some of the others in the passage we've just had read, who hear the word and pass judgment on it. There is no such thing as a de facto member of the kingdom of God. That just somehow by growing up all your life in the church that somehow that automatically brings you into God's family. Or because your parents held a particular faith that somehow you think you inherit that as part of their will or just genetics. That's not how it works. There is no de facto members of the household of God. If those who were near to Jesus and his own family were being challenged... And so any one of us 
who think because of our familiarity with the church and being around other Christians makes us part of his family need to reconsider. And it grieves me to think how many people gathered in churches all around the world who think they're right with God might not actually be right with God. Not, not because I doubt, doubt people in general, but because there are so many people sitting in churches who think, just because I've come to church all of my life, I'm part of God's family. Or just because when I was a kid, somebody baptised me, therefore I'm part of God's family. Or just because I've taken communion, therefore I'm part of God's family. They are all things that people who are in God's family should do, but they are not the means by which you enter into God's family. You become a child of God by repenting, turning from your sin and placing your trust in Jesus Christ. Anything else is not a means by which you enter into his family. No amount of closeness to Jesus gives you the right or the authority to define him, to, to change him or point him in a different direction. He can't be restrained. He's the restrainer. And as we look at verses 22 to 27, we look at restraining or serving Satan. Now sandwiched in between these two accounts of the inner circle attempting to restrain Jesus, we have a record of Jesus restraining an unclean spirit and the binding of Satan. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been casting out unclean spirits left, right and centre and people have been amazed at the authority and the power at which he has done this. Well, most people In Mark chapter 2, when Jesus said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, the scribes ask, why does this man speak like this? They're a little bit gentler in those early days, aren't they? They're like, he said he's going to forgive sins. They're like, why does he speak like this? But now they've kind of ramped it up a little bit when we get to to this occasion. Chapter 3, verse 22, says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he casts out demons. That's, that's, a, that's a long stretch from saying, who does he think he is saying these things? They're now saying, this guy is casting out demons, he is possessed by Satan, and he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. They're not denying that Jesus has power. They've seen it. They've acknowledged Jesus has powers. They acknowledge that Jesus is casting out demons, but they're saying Jesus is not doing that by an authority of his own. They're saying he's doing that by the very power of Satan, the prince of demons. Now, I don't know if they've really thought that through very well, but somehow that that by the power of the ruler of of all the unclean spirits, that somehow... Is setting it, they're setting themselves against themselves. So Jesus kind of spells it out for them. So you're saying to me that I'm using the power of the prince of demons to effectively take out his own army. Is that what you're, you're trying to get to? Because that's what they are accusing him of. He's like, that doesn't work. If a kingdom actually fights against itself, then it comes to number nothing pretty quickly. You don't see sporting teams think, oh, I'll just, I'll just go kick a few goals for the other team. 
and think that's going to work out well for the team dynamics? Don't, I won't wait for someone to point out that that technically does kind of happen in AFL, but we'll just pass over that. The only way that you can disarm and cast out these demons, he says, is if you bind the one who has authority over them, who has sent them. He's not doing it by that, by that power. Because up until this point in time, Satan has been quite freely, well seemingly, freely to afflict people. And now as Jesus arrives on the scene, he's able to cast them out simply by speaking the word. Nothing that the prince of demons can do in any way to hinder or to stop that. Because the strong man, that is Satan, has been bound. He's been disarmed. Already even before the cross and the resurrection, Jesus is in the process of dismantling the kingdom of darkness. And when he goes to the cross, according to Paul in Colossians 2.15, he will put those powers to open shame, triumphing over them by the power of the cross. And so these scribes and their opposition of Jesus and his casting out of demons are effectively serving the will of Satan themselves. We see on another occasion when Jesus is addressing the religious leaders in John chapter 8, verse 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil. And unwittingly, anyone who poses the will of God, whether they know it or not, whether they intend to or not, are serving Satan. Remember how the Apostle Paul speaks of our condition before we came to faith in Christ? In Ephesians chapter 2, those first two verses, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He says, You once, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you did, you followed him. That was the natural position of every single person born into this world. Yet Jesus has come to set us free. And as he assesses this situation in verses 28 to 30, he gives us a serious warning about something which is unforgivable. But he also gives us a beautiful truth about those who can receive forgiveness the unforgivable and the forgivable in verses 28 to 30. Jesus begins with the beautiful good news saying, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men, and whatever blasphemy they utter. Now sometimes we get so locked up with the second thing that Jesus says that we miss the beauty of this first thing. Jesus starts by saying, all sins can be forgiven. Whatever blasphemies people utter can be forgiven. This is the judge of all mankind says all sins can be forgiven. There's nothing off limits. There is no one who is too bad, too sinful, who cannot come to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. That's wonderfully good news for those of us who've got a bit of a past that they're ashamed of. For those who might be involved in something presently and actively right now that they think is too dark too sinful for Jesus to forgive. Jesus says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. Whatever blasphemies they utter, with one exception. What is this unforgivable sin? 
He says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What does he mean? Does that mean to, to use the Lord's name in vain? Should I be fearing and wondering whether or not I've accidentally committed whatever this is? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us wondering as to why he said this statement. Straight after it, he said, he said this because they were claiming that Jesus had an unclean spirit. What was happening is Jesus was casting out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. The scribes were attesting the work of the Holy Spirit to being the work of of Satan. They were resisting and refusing to spare to accept the witness of the Holy Spirit to who Jesus was. And the role of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness, to point you to see who Jesus truly is, to convict the world of sin and judgment and righteousness. And if you reject and will not listen to the witness of the one who points you to the means of forgiveness, there will be no forgiveness. It's very similar language that the writer of Hebrews writes in chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, talking about those who've experienced the Spirit, had all of the blessings, had been in its presence and have seen it for themselves. Cannot be restored to repentance. So if you're worried that you've committed it, If you are in Christ, you haven't. Because you have come to Christ because of the witness of the Holy Spirit that pointed you to Christ. And if you haven't trusted Jesus yet, do not harden your heart to the prompting of the Spirit to point you to place your faith in him. Because if you do... There is no forgiveness. There is nothing but but judgment and getting what your sins deserve. But Jesus came that we might be set free from the very things that we deserve. Because any other sins, he says, Jesus is ready and willing to forgive. So what do we say in, in response? Jesus pronounces that all sins except the rejection of the Holy Spirit can be forgiven. So if you've been held back from placing your trust in Jesus because of guilt and shame, then the one who will stand as the judge of every single human being who says all sins can be forgiven other than the blasphemy of the Spirit. So you don't need to hold back. You can come to him. You can be set free of the guilt and shame. No longer be a slave to a saint. You can be part of his family. But it also serves as a healthy reminder for those of us who've been in Christian circles for quite some time. As we've seen these three different groups, some thinking that because of their familiarity with Jesus, they have earned the right to somehow to define Jesus, his words and his actions to suit themselves. Yet Jesus turns and says, you want to know who's my family? My family's not those who just happen to hang around in my proximity, those who just happen to come along to church sometimes. It says, my family are those who sit at my feet, who listen, who do God's will, who hear the word of God and obey it. We need to be very careful 
lest there even be a slightest hint in our mind that we try to redefine Jesus and tame him and put him into a box that suits us. Rather, that we would come to know the beauty of who he really is as the Holy Spirit wants us to, to see him in all of his glory. And that would redefine and conform and change every bit of us that we might like to be like him and to follow him in faithful obedience. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have drawn near near to us in Jesus, that the word did indeed become flesh and dwell amongst us. We thank you that even though in the the age in which we live we we were not able to, to look upon him with our own eyes, yet we believe in him and we are filled with a joy that is inexpressible. Lord, forgive us from times when we have tried to redefine Jesus in a way that is more comfortable to us or in times when we think that our service, our position or however long we've been a Christian gives us some right to expect some special treatment. Lord, we thank you that you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And Lord, we pray too, we thank you that you have bound the prince of demons that he may no longer blind the eyes of the nations to respond to the gospel and lord we thank you for the confidence that gives us that we might declare your wonders and lord we know that you have chosen a people for the foundation of the world in christ we pray that as they hear your word they might respond in faith that you might call them your mother and your brothers and your sisters and we thank you that you call us your children as we have turned to you in faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.